Chapter 5 of the Pianoforte Sonata by John South Shedlock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Haydn and Mozart. 1. Haydn. This composer, to whom is given the name of Father of the Symphony and the Quartet, was born at Rohrau, a small Austrian village on the Leither, in the night between the 31st of March and the 1st of April, 1732. At a very early age, the boy's sweet voice attracted the notice of G. Reuter, Kapellmeister of St. Stephen's, Vienna, and for many years he sang in the cathedral choir. In 1749 he was dismissed, the alleged cause being a practical joke played by him on one of his fellow choristers. He was, as Sir G. Grove relates in his article Haydn, in the Dictionary of Music and Musicians, thrown upon the world with an empty purse, a keen appetite, and no friends. Haydn took up his abode in an attic in the old Mikehila house, but it chanced that Metastasio lived in the same building, and the famous poet took an interest in the penniless composer, and, among other things, taught him Italian. Metastasio was extremely fond of music, and we know from his letters that the flowing compositions of his countrymen delighted him more than the learned music of Germany. Then Haydn made the acquaintance of Porpora, who gave him instruction in composition and in the art of singing, and he also is supposed to have studied the works of San Martini, an Italian composer in the service of Prince Esterhazy. In addition, Italian music was much played and much admired in Vienna. Emmanuel Bach also, as we have seen, came under Italian influence, but not until he had finished his studies under his father's guidance. Once more, we may conclude that Haydn, before he commenced writing clavier sonatas, had made acquaintance with those of Paradis and of Alberti. These early Italian influences should be noted, for one is apt to think rather of the young composer as plodding through Fuchs's Gradus and playing Emmanuel Bach's sonatas on his little worm-eaten clavier. During his last years, Haydn told his friend Greisinger that he had diligently studied Emmanuel Bach and that he owed very much to him. From the painter Dies, in his biographical notice of the master, we also learn how fond he was of playing Emmanuel Bach's sonatas. And this influence was undoubtedly not only a strong, but a lasting one. In 1788, the year in which E. Bach died, Haydn wrote to Artaria, begging the latter to send that master's last two works for clavier. In reference to Haydn, musicians are apt to speak merely of his sonatas, while those of Beethoven are generally described by their key, or their opus number, or as belonging to one of the three periods into which that master's artwork is usually divided. There is good reason for this difference. Haydn's sonatas are not of equal importance with those of his successor, and then some are old-fashioned, others second-rate. Beethoven's sonatas are by no means all of equal merit, yet there is not one but has some feature, whether of form or development or technique, by which it may be distinguished. And yet a close and careful study of Haydn's sonatas will show that he, too, had his periods of apprenticeship, mastery and maturity. Let not our readers take alarm. We are not going to analyse his 35 sonatas or to enter into minute details. But we shall try, by selecting some of the most characteristic works, to show how the master commenced, continued and concluded. The earliest of the published sonatas... 
footnote for the benefit of readers who may not possess poles j Haydn, we insert in brackets after the pole numbers those of the holler edition end of footnote number one 33 is somewhat of a curiosity it consists of four movements an allegro in g major a minuetto and trio g major and minor an adagio in g minor and an allegro molto in g major it is the only sonata of haydn's which contains four movements the plaintive trio and scarlatti like finale are attractive in the year 1774 j j hommel at amsterdam published six sonatas the last three of which appear to have been originally written for pianoforte and violin footnote compare cf poles j haydn volume two page three hundred and eleven they are in the keys of d e flat and a and are interesting the tempo di menuetto of the second presents a strict canon in the octave in the last two there is a curious canon end of footnote and in 1776 six more were printed by longman and broderip as opus 14 these may serve as specimens of haydn's early style and in them by the way the composer was accused of imitating nay caricaturing e bach in the european magazine for october 1784 there appeared an account of joseph haydn a celebrated composer of music in which occurs the following amongst the number of professors who wrote against our rising author was philip emmanuel bach of hamburg formerly of berlin and the only notice haydn took of their scurrility and abuse was to publish lessons written in imitation of the several styles of his enemies in which their peculiarities were so closely copied and their extraneous passages particularly those of bach of hamburg so inimitably burlesqued that they all felt the poignancy of his musical wit confessed its truth and were silent further on the writer mentions the sonatas of opuses thirteen and fourteen as expressly composed in order to ridicule bach of hamburg nay he points to the second part of the second sonata in opus thirteen and the whole of the third sonata in the same work by way of special illustration there are many resemblances to e bach in haydn notes wide apart pause bars surprise modulations etc and this is not more extraordinary than to find resemblances between mozart and beethoven but the charge of caricature seems unfair besides it is scarcely likely that haydn who owed so much to bach would have done any such thing it must be remembered that at the date of the european magazine in question e bach had not yet published any of the six leipzig collections sonaten for kenner etc by which he is best known at the present day of the six sonatas opus thirteen the first three are numbers eight twenty six nine twenty seven ten twenty eight in pole's thematic catalogue joseph haydn volume two the other three have not been reprinted in modern collections in the first three the keys and order of movements are as follow number one allegro moderato in c adagio f finale presto number two allegro moderato in e adante e minor finale tempo di menuetto number three allegro moderato in f larghetto e minor presto these sonatas are interesting as music and the workmanship is skilful if one can get over the thinness of the part writing especially in the slow movements there is much to enjoy in them 
The style of movement, tempo diminuetto, in No. 2, recalls Emmanuel Bach's Wurtemberg sonatas of 1745. Here are the numbers of the sonatas of Opus 14. 11, 20, 12, 21, 13, 22, 14, 23, 15, 24, 16, 25. And here are the keys and movements. Number 1. Allegro con brio in G. Minuetto, G. Trio, G minor. Presto. Number 2. Allegro moderato in E flat. Minuetto, E flat. Trio, E flat minor. Presto. Number 3. Moderato in F. Adagio, B flat. Tempo diminuetto. Number 4. Allegro in A. Adagio. Tempo diminuetto con variazione. Number 5. Moderato in E. Presto. Number 6. Allegro moderato in B minor. Tempo diminuetto. Presto. During the 18th century, both in Italy and Germany, sonatas in two movements were common, but with Haydn the reduction in number 5 probably was made on practical and not artistic grounds. Schindler once asked Beethoven why he had only two movements to his sonata in C minor, opus 111, and the master replied, probably with a twinkle in his eye, that he had not had time for a third. If these sonatas of 1776 be compared with earlier ones, 1767, an immense improvement in the development sections will be observed. In the earliest but one of the master's sonatas, number 2, 30, the whole of the middle section is in the principal key. Number 4, opus 14, has all three movements connected, a plan, as we have already seen, adopted by E. Bach in some of his sonatas. The sonata in question is in the key of A major. The allegro ends with an arpeggio dominant chord, and still in the same bar follows the dominant chord of the relative key of F sharp minor, leading directly to the adagio. This movement, in its turn, closes on the dominant chord of A, the key, of course, of the final movement, tempo diminuetto con variazione. In 1780, six sonatas were published by Artaria, and dedicated to the sisters Franziska and Marianne von Auenbrugger. They are numbers 20, 1, 21 to 24, 10 to 13, and 7, 14. Number 20, 1, is a bright little work. Number 22, 10, C-sharp minor, opens with an interesting movement. Footnote. The treble of the tenth bar of the second section has been frequently printed a third too high. End of footnote. The sonata ends with a beautiful menuetto and trio, in which the composer comes very near to Beethoven. The middle movement is a scherzando, and thereby hangs a little tale. Number 24, 13, commences with the same theme. When Haydn sent the sonatas to his publisher, he called attention to this resemblance, and, in fact, requested that it should be mentioned on the inner side of the title page. And he added, I could, of course, have chosen a hundred other ideas in place of this one, but in order not to run any risk of blame on account of this intentional trifle, which the critics, and especially my enemies, will regard in a bad light, I make this avertissement. Or please add some note of a similar kind, otherwise it may prove detrimental to the sale. Number 22, 11, has an opening allegro in Haydn's brightest manner. The short largo is quaint and expressive. 
The fortissimo chord of the Neapolitan sixth is of fine effect. The movement ends on the dominant chord and thus leads without break into the lively presto finale. The concluding movement of the next sonata displays a crispness and vigour which remind one of Haydn's great successor. Already in connection with these six sonatas we have mentioned Beethoven, and from this period onwards the kinship between the two composers becomes more evident. Haydn, however, did not, like Beethoven, rise steadily higher and higher. Great movements came, as it were, by fits and starts. He wrote in season and out of season. Nulla dies sine linea seems to have been his motto. With Beethoven, a later work, unless it be one of his few pièces d'occasion, means a fuller revelation of his genius. We now pass on to the latest period, represented by two great sonatas, both in the key of E-flat. The one was written by the composer's friend and patron, Frau von Gensinger. The opening allegro shows earnest, deep feeling, while at the close of the recapitulation, Haydn makes us feel the full power of his genius. The passage irresistibly recalls moments in the first movement of the Appassionata. Those stately reiterated chords, those solemn pauses, have a touch of mystery about them. It is interesting to see how the second theme is evolved from the principal subject of the movement. By a slight modification, the character of the music is quite changed. What was stately is now light and graceful. The Adagio Cantabile is one of the purest examples of a style of music that has become a thing of the past. The full and sustained tone of modern instruments has rendered unnecessary those turns, arpeggios and numerous ornaments with which the composers of the last century tried to make amends for the fleeting tones of their harpsichords and clavichords. Haydn and Mozart were skilful in this art of embellishment, although sometimes it was unduly profuse. This adagio of Haydn's is a model of sobriety. The bold minor section, which Frau von Gensinger, by the way, found rather troublesome to play, offers an effective contrast to the major. A graceful tempo diminuetto brings the work to an effective close. The other sonata in E-flat, footnote, this sonata in E-flat, opus 78, was dedicated to Mrs. Bartolozzi, wife of the famous engraver, and to her Haydn also dedicated one in C major, marked as opus 79, a bright, clever and showy work, in which the influence of Clementi is sensibly felt. The development section of the opening allegro, together with the return to the principal theme, is interesting. The adagio, in the key of the subdominant, is one of Haydn's best, while the final movement, Allegro Molto, is full of life and humour, end of footnotes, is much more difficult to play. The writing is fuller, and it contains passages which even a modern pianist need not disdain. It is really strange that the sonata is not sometimes heard at the popular concerts. In the opening Allegro, the exposition section contains more than the two orthodox themes, and the development section assumes considerable magnitude. The latter is full of clever details and bold modulations. The key of the adagio is E major, but this is of course the enharmonic equivalent of F flat. Brahms, in his last sonata for violoncello and pianoforte in F, has the slow movement in F sharp. This has been spoken of as a novelty, yet Haydn, as we see, had already made the experiment, and similar instances may be found in Schubert and Beethoven, though not in their pianoforte sonatas.
The finale presto reminds one by the style of writing and by a certain quaint humour of Emmanuel Bach, but there are some bold touches, sforzandos on unaccented beats, prolongation of phrases, long dwelling on one harmony, etc., which anticipate Beethoven. Traces of the past, foreshadowings of the future, these are the familiar facts in evolution. 2. Mozart Before Mozart had reached the age of twenty, he wrote six sonatas for a certain Baron Dernitz, who, by the way, forgot to send the promised payment in return. Of these, Otto Jahn remarks that their healthy freshness and finished form entitle them still to be considered as the best foundation for a musical education. Freshness is indeed the best term to describe both the thematic material and the developments. Four of them, numbers 1, 2, 3 and 5, consist of the usual three movements. Number 4 commences with a long adagio in two sections, each of which is repeated. Two graceful minuets, the second taking the place of a trio, follow, and the third movement is an allegro in sonata form. Number 6 has for its second movement a rondo en polonaise, and for its third a theme with variations. The rondo of number 3, in B-flat, is unusually long. It contains two episodes, one in the relative minor, the other in the subdominant. The next three sonatas, in C, A minor and D, are of greater importance. They are all said to have been written at Mannheim. The first was most probably the one mentioned in a letter of 1777 written by Mozart to his father. He describes a public concert given on the 22nd of October, and says, Then I played alone the last sonata in D, then my concerto in B-flat, then a fugue in C minor, and a splendid sonata in C major out of my own head, with a rondo at the end. The last sonata in D was the last of the set of six noticed above. In reference to the sonata in C, the expression out of my own head would seem to indicate that it had not at that time been written out. Mozart was right to speak of the work as splendid. The bold opening subject, the well-contrasted second theme, the short but masterly development, the original leading back to the principal subject, and the many variations in the recapitulation section fully justify his qualification. The slow movement is full of charm, and the rondo, with its elaborate middle section, is of the highest interest. The second sonata, in A minor, is next to the one in C minor, Mozart's finest effort in this department of musical literature. And there is a story connected with it. Kapellmeister Kannabich's eldest daughter Rosa had captivated the young composer. He wrote to his father about her and described her as a pretty, charming girl, and added, she has a staid manner and a great deal of sense for her age. The young lady was only thirteen. She speaks but little, and when she does speak it is with grace and amiability. On the very next day after his arrival in Mannheim, he began to write this sonata for her. The Allegro was finished in one day. Young Dana, the violinist, asked him about the Adante, and Mozart replied, I mean to make it exactly like Mademoiselle Rose herself. This was the picture to which he worked. One of Beethoven's finest sonatas, the C-sharp minor, was inspired by a beautiful girl. A strong appeal to the emotions calls forth a composer's best powers. Mozart's first movement was written on the 31st of October, and the rondo on the 8th of November. The Allegro Maestoso presents many points of interest. 
the opening theme with its dotted motive is prominent throughout the movement the transition passage to the key of the relative major is based on it and so is the coda to the exposition section again in the development and recapitulation sections it forms a striking feature while in the final coda it is intensified by reiteration of the dotted figure and also by the rise from the dominant to the tonic the slow movement with its expressive themes graceful ornamentation and bold middle section was not surpassed by mozart even in his c minor sonata the presto closes the work in worthy manner it forms a contrast to the first movement and yet it is allied to it in sentiment the passionate outburst at the close with its repeated ease seems almost a reminiscence of the allegro theme there are two features in the development section of that movement which point to beethoven the one is the augmentation in the seventh bar of the quaver figure in the two preceding bars the other the phrase containing the shake which is evolved from an earlier one by curtailment of its first note the third sonata though in many ways attractive will not bear comparison with the other two in 1779 at Vienna Mozart composed, among other sonatas, the beautiful one in A major, the first example perhaps of a sonata commencing with a theme and variations. This first movement is very charming, but the gem of the work is the delicate menuetto. The trio speaks in tender regretful tones of some happy past. The alla turca is lively, but not far removed from the commonplace. From among the symphonies of Mozart, the three, in G minor, E-flat and C, which he wrote in 1788, stand out with special prominence, and so, from the sonatas, do the three in A minor, 1778, C minor, 1784, and F, 1788. In the first, as regards the writing, virtuosity asserts itself, and in the third, contrapuntal skill but in the second the greatness of music makes us forget the means by which that greatness is achieved the sonatas in a minor and f are wonderful productions yet they stand a little lower than the c minor the nobility and earnestness of the last named gives it a place near to beethoven's best sonatas we might say equal were it not that the writing of the instrument is comparatively thin however noble the ideas they are but inadequately expressed this C minor sonata is remarkable for its originality, simplicity and unity. Mozart possessed qualities which mark creative art of the highest kind. In writing some of his pianoforte sonatas, he had the public, or pupils, more or less in his mind. And though he did not become a mere sonata-maker, like some of his contemporaries, his whole soul was not always in his work. Of this, the inequalities in his music give evidence. In some movements, especially the closing ones, of the sonatas, the subject matter is often trivial, and the passage writing commonplace. The silkworm produces its smooth, regular ball of silk without effort, and in like manner Mozart could turn out allegros, rondos, sets of variations, a discretion the sonata in c minor to our thinking is the only one in which he was entirely absorbed in his art the only one in which the ideal is never marred by the real the last movement is no mere rondo but one which stands in close relationship to the opening allegro they both have the same tragic spirit both seem the outpouring of a soul battling with fate the slow movement reveals mozart's gift of melody and graceful ornamentation 
yet beneath the latter runs a vein of earnestness the theme of the middle section expresses subdued sadness the affinity between this work and beethoven's sonata opus ten number one in the same key is very striking mozart composed his c minor sonata towards the end of the year 1784 the c minor fantasia which precedes it in some editions was not written until the middle of 1785 the two however were published together by mozart himself it is impossible to consider this a new experiment in sonata form as regards grouping of movements the unity of character and feeling between fantasia and sonata no doubt led to their juxtaposition the fantasia is practically complete in itself so too is the sonata the two are printed separately in breitkopf and hartel's edition of mozart's work haydn and mozart represent an important stage in sonata history they stand midway between emmanuel bach and beethoven it is usual to look upon bach as the founder haydn and mozart as the builders up and beethoven as the perfecter of the sonata edifice such a summing up is useful in that it points to important landmarks in the evolution of the sonata yet it is only a rough and ready one bach was something more than a founder while beethoven to say the least shook the foundations of the edifice haydn and mozart would seem to be fairly described for traces of scaffolding are all too evident in their works yet they found the building already raised some of it however appeared to them in rococo style and so they gradually rebuilt and they not only altered but enlarged and strengthened of rebuilding and alteration their slow movements and finales give evidence and of enlargement all the three sections of movements in so-called sonata form their subject matter as it grew in importance grew in compass this in itself of course enlarged the exposition section but the transition passage from first to second theme and the rounding off of the section both grew in proportion the joints too of the structure was strengthened the half cadence no longer sufficed to divide first from second subject or after development to return to the principal theme then again the wider scope of the development itself demanded more striking harmonies more forceful figuration and more varied cadences the subject matter we have said became more important it differed also in character the themes of emmanuel bach for the most part seemed to be evolved from harmonic progressions and groupings of notes those of his successors rather the source whence springs melody and figuration the one uttered broken phrases the others complete musical sentences italian fashion prevailed during the second half of the eighteenth century much as it did in the first the simple charm and warmth of the music of the violin composers had penetrated to the contrapuntal style which covered emmanuel bach's heart and the feeling that he could never hope to rival his father must have rendered him all the more willing to yield to it but the influence of his father could not be wholly cast aside and emmanuel was as it were drawn in opposite directions it is really wonderful what he actually achieved true lovers of john sebastian bach know well that his music though of a contrapuntal character is by no means dry but the formal aspect of it must have made its mark on the sun ere he could feel the power and realize the splendor of his father's genius haydn and mozart on the other hand were born and bred in the very midst of italian music 
of Haydn's early days we have already spoken, and those of Mozart's were not unsimilar. Otto Jahn, in his life of that composer, says of the father Leopold that his ideas were firmly rooted in the traditions of Italian music, so firmly, indeed, that he could not appreciate the mild innovations of a Gluck. This paternal influence was deepened, besides, by Mozart's early visits to Italy. Then, again, so far as we can make out, the clavier compositions of John Sebastian Bach and, especially the well-tempered clavier, were unknown both to Haydn and Mozart in their days of childhood and early manhood. What a difference in the case of Beethoven, who, it will be remembered, could play the greater number of the 48 preludes and fugues before he was 12 years of age. The beauty of Italian music not only impressed Haydn and Mozart, but kindled their creative faculties, while its simple rhythmical character probably aided them materially in giving utterance to their thoughts and feelings. Nature had bestowed on them in rich measure the gift of melody, and they soon began to compose. Emmanuel Bach, we have said, was drawn in two opposite directions. Haydn and Mozart, though they were spared this dual influence, had, however, to face a difficulty. They found a form ready to hand, yet one which, as we have attempted to show, required modifications of various kinds. The former had to make the old fit in with the new, but the latter the new with the old. Hence their inspiration was handicapped. They were, to some extent, constructing as well as creating, and then their sense of order, balance and proportion was so strong that they often turned out movements more remarkable for their clearness of form than for the strength of their contents. Mozart profited by Haydn's early attempts, and his best sonatas are vastly superior to most of Haydn's. After Mozart's death, and even for some years before, Haydn seems to have caught much of the spirit of the young composer. He showed this especially in his London symphonies, but also in one or two of his later sonatas. This mutual reaction, says Jan, so generously acknowledged by both musicians, must be taken into account in forming a judgment on them. Haydn, though fully conscious of his powers, practically acknowledged the superiority of his brother artist. On learning of Mozart's death, he exclaimed, Posterity will not see such a talent for a century to come, a prophecy which, at the time it was uttered, seemed likely of fulfilment. End of chapter 5. Recording by Jordan Watts, Oxfordshire.